hello there and welcome to episode 213 with Melissa Dinwiddie. She is a former jazz musician and an improv practitioner and instructor and she's out there in Silicon Valley with a lot of you who are listening. So I'm really looking forward. She's going to talk to us about adding that creative touch, that that fun touch to our message and she's really strong in helping teams to use this creative approach, this lighthearted approach to working together better. So I can't wait to hear what she has to say today. Speaking of creativity, you know, the last episode we really focused on technical technical framing and technical terms and tools to help get technical messages, especially across to the business side, which can be a little bit challenging. And actually, it's becoming more challenging because it's not that communication is becoming more complex, but everything else is. I mean, just think of all the things that go into setting up your washer and dryer or um, all the all the AI components that we're putting into practice. Like those really aren't just hocus pocus. It's a lot of brain crashing work, super high technical level. And, you know, I know you engineers are expected to know more than ever before. But anyway, today is going to be about fun, about bringing a lighthearted touch. And I wanted to share one tip before we get into talking with Melissa, because I have this one tool that I have been using for at least 10 years. And I learned it from a copywriter, like somebody who writes advertising. And I use, I, I use it all the time. I, I use it for my newsletter sometimes. Whenever I get uninspired, I like, I want to make this message more interesting. I have this one page. It's in my book where I write down my things. But it could be on your phone. It could be in a notebook if you have a journal or if you have a, an agenda. And it's called a sizzle file. So what is a sizzle file? It's a document where you write down interesting words. That's all. You just write down when a message, when an email captures your attention and add, you know, the best minds in communication work in advertising. An ad catches your attention, especially a luxury ad. My newsletter has really good stuff in it. I hope you're getting that. If not, you need to go to speakupwithlaura.com and sign up. I'm just going to give you some sample, some sample words from my sizzle file. And I hope you'll use this to kind of make your emails especially more interesting. So the word demon, you know, I am literally obsessed with exorcism. So the fact that demons, you know, are a thing and that can be the bad guy or the thing that's the problem is a demon. Call it a demon. That's what a word. I'm just randomly picking these things out. Black tie optional. When my podcast guests get their appointment confirmed, it gives them, you know, like, this is how to prepare. Look forward to talking to you. And by the way, black tie optional. And I, I think you know that we. I actually had a guest show up in black tie. That was really funny. Oh, wildly untalented. Your competition, wildly untalented. Instead of a resting biatch face, I say resting serial killer face. When people are afraid to ask questions, I say they have ask phobia. When I'm talking about getting your message across, I can call it communication physics. 
I can talk about my life altering wisdom and I talk about my portfolio questions. So all of those, those are just a sample of words that can liven up, make your copy juicy. And what your copy, yes, even if you're an engineer, your email is copy. Your email is motivating people to read, hopefully to read and to act upon what you're saying. And if you would like more tips, please visit the Practical Guide to Effective Communication. Get recognized for the value you already contribute. It's on Amazon. You can get it in paperback or you can get it the digital copy. I wrote it. It's got so much in it and it's straightforward. It's literally like 20 books in one because every chapter is like a distillation of all this stuff that really works and that is especially introvert friendly. So that's what's coming on today. It's going to be a very fun episode. You're going to be hearing it, you know, close to Thanksgiving. So I'm I'm hoping you're going to use this to kind of lighten up your messaging between now and the end of the year and into next year, because let me tell you from somebody who's had thousands of coaching conversations, when you say something in a way that's lighthearted or interesting, number one, it sticks when everybody's ADHD or neurodiverse in some way, and it makes you sound more confident. God's truth. When you have the guts to say something in a non-conventional, not boring way, it communicates confidence. So that's what I wanted to tell you. I'm now going to bring on our guest, Melissa Dinwiddie. And by the way, she's a Brit, so prepare for the accent. Well, Melissa, I am so happy to see you and I wish everybody else could see you. She's got a great book called The Creative Sandbox Way, which we're going to hear about. But the fun thing about Melissa is that she worked in the arts and she was a jazz pianist. Now, my husband is a professional classical violinist and my stepdaughter is becoming a professional pianist. So, And jazz, I know that jazz and classical are like very different, but tell us your journey to how you got started in that and then how you leverage that in helping technical teams, high-performing teams to get visibility and do better things. Tell us about your journey and welcome to the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me, Laura. It is a delight to be here. And I wish everybody could see you. Your (laughs) setting is really inspiring with all the art behind you. First of all, I have to make a little correction. I was never a jazz pianist. I was a jazz singer. Oh, okay. I did play piano as a child, but never jazz. And that's probably one of the reasons why I stopped making music as a kid, because the kind of music that I made was always classical mm-hmm. and I never, I played piano and then violin and viola and I gave up music when I was 15, partly because I just wasn't really passionate about it. You have to be. And then also because I got caught very early on in the comparison trap. Oh no. Oh well, that's, yes. That's a- but that's endemic to music. I mean, isn't it? I mean, like, well, they're I always- think it's endemic to any kind of creative pursuit, particularly for some of us who are a little bit more wired that way than others. I'm a four on the Enneagram, and we tend to be that way very much so. You know, everyone else is better than we are, you know, that kind of thing. And so 
I wasn't passionate about it. So I didn't practice as much as some of the other kids. And so I personalized it and pathologized it into, well, I just suck. They're just naturally amazing. And I'm just not as good as they are. So therefore, I should just quit. Right. So I didn't do music for, oh, my God, it was like 20 years or 28 years or some ridiculous amount of time or something. And then I came back to it as an adult. I joined a synagogue in my late 20s. Nobody joins a synagogue in their 20s unless they have kids. But <laughs> I was I was drawn to learn more about my Jewish heritage. And I had never gone to Hebrew school or anything. I'd never had a bat mitzvah. And I was drawn to learn more about it as an adult. And it became very obvious to the people who had started this progressive lay-led synagogue that I could carry a tune. Right. And so they tapped me to be one of the lay leaders in the synagogue. Now, I have a tendency, just the way the architecture of my vocal cords, mm-hmm. I go hoarse very easily. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I started taking voice lessons, thinking that that would help me to not go hoarse so easily. And while I was taking voice lessons, a friend of mine gave me a homemade CD with a bunch of tunes, jazz tunes by, you know, jazz singers. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything about jazz. My parents didn't have jazz in the house when I was growing up. They had like Johnny Cash and the Beatles. And, and I was listening to this music, which of course is the soundtrack of a lot of movies and stuff like that. And I was like, oh my God, this is jazz. This is amazing. I want to sing like this. So I brought it to my voice teacher and she said, oh, well, let's work on some of these songs. And by the way, there's a class at the local community college that you can take if you want. And so I signed up for this class. And for the next three years, I took this class on jazz vocal solo singing. The teacher, it was his last three years before he retired. He was an amazing teacher. And one of the accompanists of this class, he was a multi-instrumentalist and he played piano at this bar at this local dive restaurant, Cattleman's Restaurant, like this old steakhouse, right? (laughs) And he played piano there three nights a week. And if you wanted to, he kind of turned it into a jam session where you could come and bring your charts and you could sit in with the band. And so I learned how to cut my teeth as a jazz singer. And I learned how to count off a band and hold a microphone with my knees shaking like crazy because I was so darn nervous, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's how I learned how to be a jazz singer. I got my first gig from somebody who, a blues singer who frequented these informal jam sessions, who got, became friendly with me. And she let me open for her one night. And I, you know, became friends with other people and got gigs there. And anyway, that's how I ended up becoming a jazz singer. And at the time, I was a professional artist. I, that's how I made my living. Oh. I was a professional calligrapher and artist. And initially, it was all art made on commission. A lot of wedding artworks, a lot of primarily, I mean, I did all kinds of things. If you know, like somebody came to me and said, oh, here I have this poem. Can you do this as a piece of art for me? I did that kind of thing. But my main product that I made was Jewish marriage contracts. 
there is a document that is a traditional part of every single traditional Jewish wedding ceremony. So if you ever go to a Jewish wedding, you will see this beautiful document. It's called a ketubah. In its most traditional form, it is literally a prenuptial agreement. Oh my gosh, that is so cool. I know. These documents have been around for over 2,000 years, like over 2,400 years or something. This original text in its original form, which is written in Aramaic, which is the language that Jesus would have spoken. Yes, that is so... Original text is still in use today by the Orthodox Jewish community. Right. Now, the documents that I made were mostly for reform couples, conservative Jews, interfaith couples, gay couples, you know, progressive couples. But in any case, and in, in those cases, the language was more akin to like wedding vows, more poetic. It wasn't this traditional Aramaic language, but it's the same sort of residual concept of this beautiful document because why is this legal document this beautiful piece of art because in Judaism there's a precept that says that if an object is required for ritual purposes it's a good thing to make that object as beautiful as possible so this legal document for thousands of years has turned into this beautiful piece of art, so much so that in 17th century Italy, there were laws on the books that limited how much you were allowed to spend on <laughs> your Kutuba because people were trying to, you know, outdo the Jones, the, right, the right. right? <laughs> anyway, so that's how I made my living for about 15 years. And I got so burned out doing that. Well, my business sort of just grew organically until about 2007, it was on track to hit like the big number that I was going for. And then 2008 happened, which was the economic tanking. Yes. Yes. And the business tanked along with everything else. And I spent a couple of years throwing money at the problem and only succeeded in getting myself into debt. And then 2010, I really hit a wall and the universe kind of walloped me upside the head a couple of times. And I realized I kind of hit bottom and I realized I didn't have to be a ketubah artist and a jazz player at night. For the rest of my life, I could do something else if I wanted. And what did I want to do? And I realized that even though I had been an artist, a professional artist, which you would think, you know, boy, that's got to be the most creative job ever, right? Right, right. I was living an incredibly uncreative life and I was miserable. So I wanted to get back to living a creative life. And I started a blog called Living a Creative Life. And I started writing and writing and writing and writing on the blog, trying to figure out what that life you know, would be. What did I want? And I started interviewing people who were making a living from their art and their creative things, all different kinds of creatives. And I packaged all those interviews up in a little program and sold that as my first online entrepreneurial offer. And then for the next few years, I just sort of threw spaghetti at a wall to see what would stick and ended up kind of falling back, just as I sort of previously had fallen backwards into a career as an artist. And now I sort of fell backwards into a career as a creativity instigator, helping people get creatively unstuck. Meanwhile, I started leading in-person creativity retreats 
as my sort of side thing that I was doing with this online business. And I realized as I was leading my creativity retreats, wow, what am I doing running an online business? It's working with groups, working with people, helping create transformation in this kind of setting. This is what I'm really good at. Why am I building an online business? And it took several years of me leading these creativity retreats. Meanwhile, I had discovered improv and I was weaving improv into the creativity retreats as a way to help people get out of their heads and into their bodies, send those pesky gremlins of self-doubt, the gremlins of self-criticism out of the room so that people could get down to the business of getting creative, of doing their art, doing their writing, doing their whatever the creative projects were that they had brought to the retreat without those voices in their head getting in the way. You know, the voices say, you're not good enough. What are you doing? Why are you doing this thing? You shouldn't be wasting your time. You know, all those (laughs) awful voices that stop us, sending them out of the room. So I was using improv games to facilitate that. And I had this epiphany that this is exactly the same thing that I would be doing with business teams. Right. Except I would be debriefing the games instead of just getting people laughing and moving. I can do this. So that's what shifted me into that pivot to working with teams and groups. This was a big shift because I didn't have, I didn't come from corporate. I didn't have a network of people that I could just say, hey, you know, let's work together. And also I had a huge imposter complex mindset hurdle Mm -hmm. to overcome. I'm sure. So it was a big like climbing, starting at the bottom of Mount Everest and (laughs) starting that climb. So that came in um, 2017 was when I made that pivot and have been on that journey ever since. And so what was that? It was a few years of making that shift And I was just starting to get a little traction. I'd done some work for Uber. I had done some work for Stanford Children's Hospital. And then guess what happened? A little thing called the global pandemic. Yes. And then I had to say, well, now what do I do? (laughs) Because I had shifted from this online business Mm -hmm. to doing everything in person. Now what? And I looked around and I thought for a while, well, maybe I'll just volunteer and work for the upcoming election, which I was doing, but I looked around and I was very active on LinkedIn. And I noticed that people were really, really struggling with what to do on Zoom. And I was part of a very active, very big community of improv practitioners, people who use improv in an applied way. I do actually perform on stage mm-hmm. with improv, but okay. this is a group of people who are specifically using improv in an applied way. So for example, the way I do with businesses or mm-hmm. at my creativity retreats or in education or for events mm-hmm. in a way that is not for performance. Right. Gotcha. Separate right. Way, right. So this group of people got together and started meeting on Zoom how can we break Zoom? How can we make this work? How can we make virtual work? How can we use improv to make virtual work well for people? Yes. So I was just, (laughs) yes, exactly. So I was just soaking up all of this information and what going every Friday to these meetup events that we were having. 
And I started offering pilot workshops that I called non-boring virtual meetings. Workshops. I love that. And they were super fun and very imperfect. And I learned a ton and people loved them. And because of that, I started getting inquiries from people that I knew who worked in companies like Facebook. Hey, can you help us? We're so desperate to have an offsite. Our team really needs help with these issues. Is that something that's even possible to do in a virtual setting? And yes, it is. And this is how I can help you. So I developed a program for a team of researchers at Facebook, specifically around how to communicate for more influence and impact. And that was a fairly short, it was just a couple of sessions. Here's a hint also, an interesting fact. First of all, I never would have gotten the gig if it had not been the pandemic because they probably already had their existing vendors, right? Second of all, if it had not been for the pandemic, they only would have brought me in for, you know, like a day long offsite. It would not have been as effective because what I'm teaching is building muscles. It's building skills. And it's so much more effective to do this kind of work over a span of time in shorter bursts. Going in for a one-off, one-shot thing, you know, it's great, but it is not something that's going to be sustainable and it's not going to last. Whereas going in over a span of shorter sessions, mm-hmm. it gives you the opportunity to learn something have a great insight, which you're going to have with the day long, but it's not going to stick. You have the insight and then you have the opportunity to actually practice right. and come back and share what you experienced, share with everybody else, learn from their experiences, learn some more in the next session, and then practice it again and repeat, wash, rinse, and repeat. I love that. So everybody listening, if you're thinking about career pivots, listen to what Melissa went through. I mean, it was just one thing after another. Some pivots were led by her own desires or dissatisfaction, and some were led by factors completely outside of her control. Like Melissa, I also made most of my money with in-person workshops prior to 2020. Had the nice calendar booked full of it, and then one day they all just, my calendar just cleared. And, you know, a lot of us have had similar experiences, but I think everybody can say, you know what, I learned things and somehow I'm, I'm better off now. I mean, it was, it was definitely a challenge, but this is just so interesting. But Melissa, I, you know, I'm talking to engineers all day and not everybody listening is an engineer, but it's a heavy technical listening base. And I'm imagining some of them being like, what? why do I need to learn improv? Why, what is this all this creative stuff about? Like, how do you sell that to people who may be skeptical when you're giving a workshop? I think that would be interesting to know. Yeah. So some people are skeptical. First of all, I typically don't sell that I'm an improv person. I mean, that's, that's not what I lead with. Oh, okay. It's a tool to achieve influence. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Okay. It's a okay. tool. Right. So what I lead with is I'm solving problems for you. What problems do you have? Typically it's like some kind of communication issue. Right. They're dealing with a conflict. They're dealing, you know, whatever the challenges are, the issues are, we start there. And then improv is one of the tools that I might use. It's one of my main tools 
I also use Lego Serious Play as another tool that I use. There are other tools in my toolbox. I may not call it improv. I may call it active learning or interactive activities or something like that (laughs) because people are intimidated. And they also think that improv is something that it's not. They might think that improv is, oh, I have to be funny. Right, right. Or I have to be dramatic and theatrical and and know how to just think of things to say off the top of my feet, which I think for a lot of the people listening, that is their number one challenge is, oh, my brain freezes when the CEO asks me something. So tell me, what would be a good improv or exercise would be good for that? Oh, let's, oh, okay. Here's a, here's a great one. This is a variation on a classic improv activity. So the, a classic improv activity is called three things that we do a lot. But a variation that I recently learned that I just did at my creativity retreat this last week is called I Need Three Things. It's super fun. So all you do is I'm going to say, I need a thing, a thing, a thing, a thing. I'm going to state three things that I need. And then you are going to repeat the last thing that I said I needed. And then you're going to add two more so that you've just said three things that you need. Okay. And then I'm going to repeat the last one that you said and add two more. So I need a popsicle. I need a beach towel and I need a beach ball. So I need a beach ball and a water cooler and a chair to sit at the beach. I need a chair to sit at the beach. I need a big umbrella and I need some sunscreen. I need some sunscreen. I need a a rash guard and I need my surfboard. I need a surfboard. I need an ocean and I need a big wave. I need a big wave and my flip-flops. And a bucket. I need a bucket. I need a shovel. And I need some sand. I need some sand. And I need a vacuum cleaner to get the sand out of my car. And I need a a shower. I need a shower. I need some soap. And I need a scrub brush. I need a scrub brush and a nice towel and a blow dryer. I need a blow dryer, I need some hair gel, and I need a microfiber towel. I need a microfiber towel and my bedroom slippers and a robe. I need a robe, I need a candle, and I need some incense. I need some incense and some wine and a good book. I need a good book, I need a comfortable chair, and I need two hours. I need two hours and some Vivaldi music playing and um, uh, a platter of cheese. I need a platter of cheese. I need a glass of wine and I need some dark chocolate. I need some dark chocolate with some vanilla ice cream and a cappuccino. Yay! <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, that really made, I was like, listening for that th- last thing for sure. Yeah. It's a great one for listening. And you notice that it really doesn't require a lot 
to mm-hmm. come up with new ideas. Right. And this is actually what we're doing all the time. Right now, you and I are improvising. Right. Okay. We don't have a script. We're no. improvising right now. Right. And that, that is a lot of what people need to sort of demystify the whole notion of improv is understanding and appreciating that all day long we're improvising. And right. the only difference between improvisers, mm-hmm. you know, like whose line is it anyway mm-hmm. level improvisers and everybody else is that whose line is it anyway improvisers practice. Oh, right. Okay. So is this, it's just getting out of your mindset, out of your stupid imposter syndrome, which I don't like to even name because I just like it so much. <laughs> Self-doubt is okay, but not the other one. So this is a great way of just challenging your assumptions. And I think once we get past that, everybody's creative. You know, I was thinking about your specific career path is like very creative, you know, doing things with your pen and creating visual art and creating music and creating creativity exercises, literally creativity exercises. But, you know, our engineers are also creative. They have to come up with creative solutions. Our leaders are creative. They have to come up with creative solutions, lots of constraints everybody's dealing with. So I really love how you are working with these, you know, quote unquote, non-creative people, but they really are creative. What about presentations? Do you teach something along the lines for presentations? I do a lot of stuff with presentations. Yeah. In fact, I've been working with a creative agency specifically around communicating for influence, a lot of work relating to presentations. And one of the things I love to do with them is a game called PowerPoint Karaoke. Which oh is my gosh. All, have you ever done yeah. PowerPoint karaoke? I think that's where, is that where you, well, the one I've done, I don't, I don't remember if it's called, it's like you have these slides and you just, that you don't know, and you have to just tell a story with it. Is that how it works? That's it. And there's different ways that you can do it. There's all kinds of variations. Typically, I wouldn't just throw somebody into this activity without mm-hmm. scaffolding up to it and getting right. them really comfortable. But ultimately you build up to it. You can do this virtually. You can do this in a three-dimensional room with people. You've got a set of slides and then one person, or you can do it with pairs or trios. They have not seen the slides before and a slide will come up and they are present. You give them a topic and they are an expert in that topic. And then a slide comes up and they are talking about horse racing. (laughs) Or vaccines or, you know, whatever. It can be anything. I typically will crowdsource the topic from whoever's in the room. And the person who is presenting really in real life knows nothing about the topic, ideally. Right. And making it up. Yeah, I can imagine. That sounds like so much fun. Before we started this recording, I'm jumping around, but there's just so many things I want to ask you about in our limited time. You know, the idea of visibility and influence and that quality of being known and the value of your work known. And I was speaking to someone today who's in like a director level and she wants to influence the C-suite or this top senior leaders. 
And we were discussing the concept of the court jester and how the court jester in medieval times was the truth to power, which he was able to do because he was funny and he could say things and not get his head chopped off that somebody else might say. So how do you see enabling people in the, say, the top of the middle management or somewhere in the middle and they want to influence upwards? What is your perspective on that? I love that you brought this up. And I have to say, it brings to mind one of my best friends is all about humor. That is like her niche. And so we have these conversations all the time. You should have her on the podcast. Her name is Kathy Clotes Guest. And that is absolutely her specialty. It's all about using humor as a way of helping people be better, braver leaders and tapping into your own authentic self, your own authentic voice. And just as you say, like humor is, she calls it social lube. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, it, well, it does create, it does communicate supreme confidence when you can absolutely when you can and it doesn't have to be that you're making people just laugh till their side split just a little smile a little oh laura's you know adding some humor here you know it doesn't have to yeah. be tina and it can, it can diffuse situations and it can take something where somebody's trying to put you down or trying to have power over you or something like yes. that yes oh turn my gosh. It around. So humor is an incredibly powerful tool. Right. Well, an example that comes to mind at a keynote talk a few weeks ago, somebody who works in the construction business here in South Carolina, she said, I'm the only woman. It's very traditional. I've been there a long time. Everything is good, but they still like for me to make the coffee or that kind of thing. And and I said, use humor. I said, just say, oh, I thought we were in 2023. I didn't realize we were still in 1957. I, I'm sorry, my clock must be wrong. You know, just something yeah. <laughs> instead of getting, I mean, of course, it's like you could get angry about it, but that would, that would be my default. But I've learned that usually getting irritated doesn't help. It's when you, you can be so much more effective when you can have that. It doesn't mean you have to do it, but you make it, you just say no with a smile or when somebody restates your idea and tries to take credit for it, that you can say something like, oh, is there an echo in the room? I feel like, you know, somebody's (laughs) just said what I just said, you know, that kind of thing, right? It's very effective. Well, think about the people that the people that are listening to this, besides being extremely attractive, they are highly conscientious, high performers, a lot of them in either tech or IT. Some of them are business owners. What should we do to be more engaging and more entertaining and more loose in our communication and not so, you know, constipated? (laughs) Well, I'm a big believer in improv. Right. So if you have the opportunity to enroll in an improv class, take an improv workshop, you know, just give it a try. If you find it intimidating, you know, see if you can get over that hurdle and look for opportunities to explore improv. There's so many benefits. So Clay Drinko 
has gathered a lot of scientific research together in an article earlier this year on psychology today. So look that up on Google. But there are seven, he references seven different specific ways that improv is beneficial. So first, improv activates language and creativity centers in the brain. Okay. There's some really cool studies that were done by Charles Lim and his team. They put jazz improvisers, freestyle rappers, and improv comedians into MRI machines. And they found that during improv, an area called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, it tends to be less active and an area known as the medial prefrontal cortex becomes more active. And so what this means is that when you're improvising, the part of the brain that's associated with self-judgment gets really quiet. Oh. And the language and creativity center of the brain kind of speaks up. <gasps> this inverse relationship is known as weak connectivity in the executive control network. And it's generally linked with flow states oh and creativity. God. And we all want to be in more, you know, right. more in a flow state, right. right? Right, right. So that's the first thing. Second, improv helps promote brain connectivity. Uh, and it, it can actually be helpful for people with complex trauma. <gasps> Third, improv boosts creativity. And this is from a study that was led by James Morey, who linked improv and enhanced divergent thinking. So what this study showed is that after a 10-week improv course, participants developed more creative uses for a paperclip than those who were in the control group. So that's a very typical test that they do. How many ways can you use this paperclip? Write down as many ways as you can think of for a paperclip, right? Right. Okay. So that was number three. Number four, improv reduces social anxiety. Now I know this seems kind of counterintuitive because it feels like, oh my God, going to an improv class, it feels so scary. It's scary, right? But there were two studies led by Peter Felsman, and they showed that improv was generally helpful in lowering people's social anxiety. And even just after 20 minutes of an improv oh intervention. Gosh. Wow. No. That is so cool. Amazing, yeah. right? Yes. And then another one, number five, improv reduces uncertainty intolerance. So people's intolerance to being with the unknown, like being mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. okay with the unknown. Mm-hmm. And that's also linked with decrease in social anxiety. So basically okay. it makes people more comfortable with uncertainty. <laughs> Which is what everybody needs because ambiguity is on the rise. On the rise. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you from my own experience, that's definitely been true for me. As I, I started doing improv in 2013, so 11 years ago, and I am way more comfortable. I am a native introvert, mm-hmm. and I am way more comfortable going into social situations than I was back then. Cool. So, I love. Well, you're talking to ambiverts or introverts. You know, the the yeah. extroverts are so busy talking they don't have time to listen. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
And then the last two, improv boosts confidence (laughs) and decreases stress. Amazing. Do you have any classes online, like virtually? Can you do a, can you do improv training? You can do improv virtually. People started doing that during the pandemic. So I would just Google it and see see what's available. Yeah, just super interesting. Wow. Well, this, the time is just going by so fast. So we've only just touched the very tippy tip of the iceberg of all your body of knowledge. We didn't mention the fun method. Maybe you can touch on that and anything they should know that will help them that I haven't asked you. Sure. Well, my fun method, it's an acronym. So F stands for find the flow. And that is we do an engaging activity Mm -hmm. and get people into that state of where they're really focused on the activity that they're engaged in. And it's an improv activity often. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Y'all don't tell anybody, but it could be. It could be an improv activity. It just might be an improv activity. (laughs) Uh, U stands for unlock the meaning. And that's when we come back together for a debrief discussion about what just happened. How does that relate to your day-to-day work life? Or, you know, what does this activity have to do with communication or whatever, you know, whatever the theme is, right? We're unlocking the meaning and light bulbs start to go off over people's heads. And then N stands for name the change. Or another N is now what? What are we going to do with this? And my sessions, my programs are multiple sessions long. So this is also where I have people create an experiment. What are you going to do between now and the next time we meet so that you are really integrating and building into your muscles something from what you've just learned so that it's going to stick with you and you're going to have a transformation that really lasts from our time together. What would be an example of that? Yeah, so people might say, um, I'm going to practice saying yes and next time somebody brings me an idea. Okay. Instead of saying an automatic no. Right, okay. Or yes, but. That might be one example. Or I'm going to pay attention to my tone when I respond to people, it really could be anything. And really so much of this comes down to self-awareness. Some of our listeners are know, are wondering, how can I get more Melissa Dinwiddie? Like what, what, how would you like them to, you know, is your book appropriate for non-create, you know, like regular people or is it <laughs> for creatives? Yeah. So my book is, Definitely appropriate for all types of people. It is specifically aimed at three different avatars. It's aimed very specifically at those people who think I'm not creative, but I wish I were. And that's one. Two is I know I'm creative, but I'm not doing the creative thing that I wish I were doing. That's two. And the third is I'm a professional creative, but I got into this professional creative thing because I really want to be doing this other creative thing, but I'm not doing that. That's three. Okay. And I've been all of those myself. (laughs) Yes. However, that said, the principles in the book 
are actually quite relevant to business as well. Even though it is aimed at creative, you know, outside of business, like making art, painting or music or writing, creative writing or whatever, the principles are relevant globally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I'll say that about that. The best way to get in touch with me is my website, creativesandbox.solutions. Okay. Or on LinkedIn, where you can find me at Melissa Dinwiddie. That's cool. I think we're connected and I will leave these links in the show notes. This has been so interesting. What I love about this podcast is that we talk to so many different kinds of people that bring different colors and nuances and layers and approaches to how to communicate better, how to get your point across in a more interesting or sticky way and how to get, you know, the recognition that your work merits. And you have definitely brought, you know, a fun touch, a creative touch for these technical, a lot of your people are like, I'm not a creative, but I know that if I hold their hands to the fire, they will be forced to say that, yes, engineers are creative. They have to be, otherwise they can't. What do you think? Artificial intelligence, that's like super creative engineering. So absolutely. And Laura, I do have a free assessment if people are interested. It's for um, leaders and high potentials. You can see where your team stands when it comes to storytelling, improv, and connection skills. And you can download it for free at bit.ly slash leadership assessment tool. And leadership assessment and tool are all capitalized. So capital L, capital A, capital T. Bit.ly slash leadership assessment tool. Okay, I'm writing this down. So I will uh, make sure I got it down and it's working. And, and I will also link that. But yes, bit.ly slash leader, leadership, leadership assessment tool. tool. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And to our audience, I will just say again, you're welcome. And thank you for tuning in. And thank you for listening to Melissa and our, me. And, and we chat about the creative approach to communication and to world domination. Just kidding. Talk to y'all on the next episode. Bye-bye.